0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv. This is the Tuesday edition, and we're glad you're able to join us on this lovely Tuesday afternoon. Um, We have an interesting topic we'll be talking about today, and uh, if you want to join in on the conversation, we invite you to do so. Please use the Q&A box or window or the chat window in your Zoom app if you're watching the program from the Zoom app and uh, type in your questions and comments there. If you're coming in on Scott's Facebook page, uh, use the comment box there. We'll be monitoring all of this communication as we go through the uh, program today. Uh, Let me bring in our panelists. Stephen, how are you? Good to see you. I'm doing well, Drew. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Our program director, Scott. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing fine today as well. Excellent, excellent. So, so Scott, we're going to be talking about the resurrection of all things. Is that right?
1: The resurrection of Christ from First Corinthians chapter 15. And not really just the resurrection of Christ. What that chapter is really about is, based on the resurrection of Christ, the promise of the resurrection of Christians to come. And he's going to back up to the resurrection of Christ, because that's the foundation. But a lot of chapters are really gonna be about the resurrection of the believer. Important topic.
0: Yes, the foundation of Christianity, obviously. Without the resurrection, uh, what are we doing here, right? Nothing Well,
1: We're gonna gonna read the text and go through, but we're also gonna be watching for some misconceptions. Uh, The first misconception we're gonna look at is the misconception conception that some of the Corinthians have. So, uh, what was the misconception that Paul mentions in verse 12 that some of them had?
0: I don't have verse 12 up, but isn't that the one that talks about uh, some of them didn't believe that there was even a resurrection from the dead?
2: Yeah, it says in verse 12, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So some of the Christians there in the church at Corinth had bought into the popular Greek philosophy that there was no resurrection at all. Nobody rises from the dead. And in fact, resurrection would be a bad thing in the according to the Greek philosophy. Like your spirit is good and your flesh is bad, so you want to get rid of your body so you can just be a spirit. And so the idea of resurrection would be like going backwards. You'd be like, "Oh, I'm finally dead I'm finally rid of my body why would I want a resurrection anyway and so Christians had bought into some of the Christians at least were starting to buy into this idea that there's no resurrection at all and first Corinthians 15 is really Paul writing to those Christians and saying you better think about that because if you buy into the fact that there's no resurrection this this is these are the logical consequences of that belief and it leaves you with no hope at all
0: Sure. isn't it, isn't it uh, actually it was easy for them when you say to buy into it because if they're coming from a Greek background huh. a, a wow. Gentile background this was something they were raised with and who is I mean I don't believe that anyone can reverse death that doesn't happen now they did accept Jesus Christ's resurrection for some reason they, they were convinced that he was raised from the dead. but I think they just couldn't apply it to themselves wouldn't you say that's going on they
1: were yeah they had been taught this about Jesus but they've decided that there's not going to be a resurrection. And Paul's going to tie the two together. Right. Remember what you were taught. Jesus rose and he's the first fruit. We are going to rise. And it let's just lay out very quickly what he's going to say. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, rose from the dead on the third day. And many witnesses saw him. He's the first fruits. And then Jesus reigns, and then he reigns till all of his enemies are defeated. All of his enemies are defeated. And the last enemy to be defeated in this chapter, Paul is going to say is what? Is death itself. Yeah. And that's, that's defeated when we are raised. So he's the first fruit, and then we are raised. And it will be a spiritual body, as we'll see, not a flesh and blood body, but a spiritual body. And we'll be getting into that in more detail. But there's a couple of other misconceptions we want to keep in mind as we read this text. Uh, Some of the Corinthians were saying, not going to be a resurrection. Hymenaeus and Philetus, mentioned over in 2 Timothy 2, they said something a little different. What were they saying?
0: Uh, it already happened. The resurrection happened in the past?
1: Already happened. And if you've been keeping it up with it at all, uh, Max King and a number of full preterists who say everything was fulfilled in 70 AD, including the end of the world and the resurrection, they're today saying the same basic thing that Hymenaeus and Philetus were saying. That is, already happened. And then premillennialists, believe that pretty soon all the Christians, not everybody, but all the dead Christians are gonna be raised from the grave, go up and meet Christ in the air, stay there seven years while some enemies show up. Remember in First Kings 15, we're gonna see Jesus reigns until all his enemies are defeated and he delivers the kingdom to the Father. In premillennialism, he doesn't have the kingdom yet, Death is conquered in the resurrection of Christians before the bad guys. Most of them show up in their, in their timeline, and you have the Antichrist, and then Jesus comes back again, and there's a big battle where he defeats all of his enemies seven years after he defeated death in the resurrection of Christians. Then he sets up his kingdom, and then at the end of that, the other people are raised from the dead. And that type of thing. So all of these misconceptions we'll be able to address as we go through First Corinthians 15. Uh, so, let, me,
0: let me add to that. So we're talking to what you described was either three or four different theories of what reality had, is going to be.
1: I had some really nice charts set up to show those <laughs> three misconceptions, and I accidentally deleted them right before we were
0: well, I wasn't going to bring that up. <laughs> but but, but no, the, the, the dog ate my no, homework.
2: Yeah, yeah, the
0: dog ate my homework. All right, but the point I'm trying to make is that here you have three, th- these are opposing theories that you just mentioned. All right. They all can't be right. So right. we're not going to look at what's wrong or right about them or not right about them. We're going to look at what does the scripture say? What does the There's scripture no. just say on its own without my preconceived idea?
1: So let's pull that up. And I thought I had it, but I don't. So can somebody pull up first, Corinthians 15?
2: Steven, I know you got yeah, it. i got it here. All right. Uh, do you want me to put it on the screen? Yes, please. All right. I'm just going to use my uh, Bible app here since I've got it handy. Let me share that with you all and we can read that together. All right. Can you all see that? There we go. Mm-hmm. All right.
1: All right. So. Paul begins, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Let's quickly set this in context. First Corinthians is written around 55 AD. Paul had gone to the city of Corinth, which was the capital city of Greece, Caia. He'd gone there about five years earlier, around 50 AD, and planted this work in this giant, important, but also very worldly city. 1 Corinthians is a to-do list of stuff to answer, straighten out, and fix. There's a bunch of problems that have been reported, and there's a number of questions or arguments that they've presented. And so instead of developing a long theme, it's like, deal with this. Now fix that. Now address this. Now take care of that. And this is a new section. And he begins by reminding them of what he taught. And in verse 12, you will see down there why this is, he has to talk to them about this. Verse 12 again, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So backing up to verse one. Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. What does the word gospel mean? good, good news. news. Yeah. So, uh, here's the good news that I preach to you and it's the thing that you stand in and it's the, what saves you. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain for I delivered to you as a first importance, what I also received He's going to list three facts here. What's the first one?
2: Christ died for our sins.
1: Yes. Uh, You remember back in chapter 2, Paul said, I determined to uh, preach Christ and him crucified. Jesus died for our sins. After Jesus died for our sins, uh, you might have thought that the apostles would come and bury the body. But they're afraid, and a lot of them go into hiding, who's going to take care of burying the body?
2: Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus.
1: Yeah. So fact number two, he was buried. And then fact number three, somebody read it.
2: And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And really there's a fourth one that's important as well. And he really? appeared. Yes. And those, those four all go together. What's interesting is of those four facts, the, the second and fourth one prove the first and third one he died and to show that he was dead he was buried he was raised and to show that he rose he appeared it right. would have been a very different story if he had rose from the dead and nobody ever saw him right and you know nobody had an experience nobody said oh i saw him alive again they just found an empty tomb and there was never anything else these right. resurrection appearances are critical
1: yes the empty tomb ended up itself is significant But people have come up with ways to explain, well, maybe the tomb was empty because of this, or because of that, or because of this. One of the problems with a lot of those explanations is it doesn't explain. Even if you can conjure up a way of thinking of an empty tomb, what about the appearances? Would you say that
0: uh, at that point, uh, what 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 we're implying there, Stephen, is that faith is based on evidence?
1: Exactly. Right. So he now, now starts going through, and this was, as he said, in accordance to the scriptures. We don't have time to go into the detail that, but there is Old Testament prophecies that relate to this. So who does it mention he appeared to in this list? Who's the first person mentioned in the list? Cephas. Cephas. or
0: Peter? Cephas. His
1: name is Peter. Cephas is the Aramaic, uh, in Aramaic, I think it would be pronounced, Kepa, Uh And it's the Aramaic word for rock. And this was the name that Jesus had given Peter. Uh, So if we go back to the gospels, we see that there were some women who actually saw him first. Uh, And we don't see in detail this appearance to Peter before the other ones, but it may be alluded to in Luke chapter 24. You remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Mm -hmm. Yeah and they realize that's Jesus they run back to where the apostles were and they said he has appeared and he, he is alive and appeared to Simon course, Simon was Peter's given name and so that might be a reference to this same appearance here to Cephas so I appeared to Cephas and then to the 12 uh, not here in the technical use of the number 12 because Judas is dead but the, the, the 12, you've still got that, that body of the 12 apostles. Then who did he appear to?
0: 500. More than 500,
1: in fact. Brothers. At and one time. And what did he point out about them? I'm sorry? What does he point out about these 500?
0: Uh, more than half of that group is still alive today.
1: Yes. So this is not... Uh, some legendary thing, theoretical, spiritual level stuff. He's talking about human eyewitnesses still alive that you could have gone and talked to, interviewed, etc. Then who did he appear to? James. What James would this be? His brother? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, back in the Gospel of John, back in John chapter 7, at that point in time, What does it say about the brothers of Jesus?
0: They did not believe Jesus and what he was saying, that he was the son of God. Not at all.
1: When is the first time that we see the brothers of Jesus as believers?
2: Pretty sure it's in Acts chapter one, isn't it? When they're gathered together and they're praying and, uh, it says that, um, all these with one accord. This is Acts 1:14. 14. We're devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers.
1: Yeah so here among the disciples now we see the brothers of Jesus. Now we're not told exactly when they became believers but if you put that together in John 7 they didn't believe. In Acts 1 they do believe and right here who did he appear to? James. Yeah, would that make you a believer? Yeah, I, I could
0: just imagine the way it's worded. There, I didn't look at it until you read it that way. Mary and his brothers. Like, I just just imagine his mother saying, "I told you all along
1: who he was. <laughs> now,
0: yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, I like that." Um, All right, so he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. There's a larger circle of people uh, that are considered and referred to as apostles. Uh, Barnabas is referred to as an apostle. Uh, He was commissioned and sent out by the Lord. And last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Uh, And of course, somebody just remind us of when and where did he appear to Paul?
0: On the road to Damascus. Yes, yeah, probably. I think it's estimated anywhere is around, what, 12 to 24 months after the resurrection It was early on.
1: Um, I mean, the scripture doesn't
0: tell us that, but I thought circular history tells us it's a couple of years after within a couple of years.
1: Yeah, it's uh it, it could be. We don't have an exact date on that. Some people estimate mid 30s, uh, but we, we don't have an exact date. Right. Uh, but I would, I would think it's uh, at least a couple of years, probably. Maybe yeah, more. so
0: it's early on. It's early
1: on. Yeah, early on, exactly. All right, and then he appeared to me, Paul writing, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. In contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. But regardless, Paul's going to say, whether you heard it from me or from Peter or from some of the other apostles, this is what we've all preached, and that's what you believe. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead, and people saw him. So, somebody read verse 12. Now,
0: if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the
1: dead? And then he starts into the logical consequences. Somebody start taking us through those.
2: Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. most to be pitied so he first goes into the the logical implications if christ has not been raised in verse 20 and really following he's going to talk about the logical implications if christ has been raised and the power of that but he begins by saying listen for believers in jesus this is the foundation of our faith if this is not true the whole thing is a sham it's pointless. We are to be pitied if this is not true. Yeah. And, he, and, he, and you can see his logic here. He's trying to connect. The Christians there weren't necessarily to the point yet of realizing the logical conclusion of their belief. And so he's saying, if you say there's no resurrection of the dead, you are saying that Christ was not raised from the dead. Because Christ have been would have been one of the dead. And if they don't come back, then Jesus didn't come back. And he points out preaching is in vain your faith is in vain your faith is futile you're still in your sins those who have fallen asleep in christ have perished there's no hope uh if 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 all we have is this life then we are to be pitied he's like people should feel sorry for us and the sacrifices that we're making for this faith if jesus christ did not raise from the dead this is pointless
0: he goes he even goes on so far to say that we the apostles all of us we're liars verse 15 that's right Yeah. if it didn't happen then we're liars and do you think I'm a liar everything that I went through and everything that you've gone through we're liars that's a major statement there
1: and he's gone through all of these witnesses confirming the resurrection of Christ over 500 people said saw Jesus but if you toss out resurrection then you've left you, 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 there's no resurrection for Jesus if there's not a resurrection. So you're throwing away one of the key things. Everything. Uh, so this is all from a negative standpoint, verse 13 on. If that's true, if there's no resurrection, here's your consequences. Bam, 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 bam. After thoroughly doing that, now he reverses course, as Stephen noticed, and we get to verse 20. But in fact, Because all of that was theoretical, if there wasn't a resurrection. But in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, and who's that man? Adam. By man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all died so also in Christ shall all be made in life, but each in his own order. Who's first? Christ. And then those that belong to Christ at his coming. Pay attention to that. When did Jesus rise from the dead?
0: Third day after he was buried.
1: That's right. When will we rise from the dead?
0: At his coming. At
1: his coming. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after having done what?
0: Destroying every rule and every authority and every power.
1: For he, that's Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And what's the last enemy
0: Jesus is going to destroy? Death itself.
1: Death. So let's pause here and think about this. Um, This, where it says he he must reign. Where does this idea, biblically, where does this idea come from about the reign of Christ? What's this about?
0: Well, his ascension, um, when he told the apostles to go wait into, wait in Jerusalem, he was being raised up. And then it was after that, Peter declared, wasn't it on, on the Day of Penelope, that he is now reigning? They saw him go up and he's sitting at the right hand of God.
1: Yes, at the right hand of God, and he quotes Psalm 110. And, uh, and this is bouncing off Psalm 110 as well here in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go back and look at Psalm 110. So Psalm 110 is one of our messianic passages, and throughout In various places in the Old Testament, there was a promise, somebody just kind of sum up what the idea of the Messiah would be. Not right now the suffering of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, but just the idea of the Messiah. Somebody summed that up for us.
2: Well, Messiah means anointed, and the idea of anointed one in the Old Testament especially carried with it the idea of kingship. Kings weren't the only anointed ones, but they were the primary anointed ones. And so Psalm 110 speaks of the Lord speaking to David's superior and telling him, I'm going, you're going to sit at my right hand. And that's royal language. You sit at the right hand of the throne. You have a power and authority from the king. And he talks about ruling in the midst of your enemies in Psalm 110. People offering themselves freely to him. So it's a a royal psalm that talks about the kingly power of the coming Messiah.
0: Yeah, Let me reiterate what you just said. So his ruling is not only when it's all the good guys on their side. Even in the enemies of the king will be alive and existing. He's ruling over all of them.
1: Yes. And in premillennialism, you get rid of the bad guys before you get rid of the enemies. And you get rid of death in, in, in the rapture, the death of Christians, all before he ever starts his reign. That's completely reversed from 1 Corinthians 15 and Psalm 110. Let's go back to verse 1 and look at this a little bit closer. Psalm 110, verse 1. Just to remember how important this psalm is, it's quoted over and over and over again in the New Testament. Without going into a bunch of detail, what are some of the places and how is this used in the New Testament?
2: Yeah, It's a whole bunch of places. Uh, Jesus quotes it himself to confound the Jews and the Pharisees by saying, how can David's son also be his Lord? Um, But it's quoted in a variety of places to talk about the resurrection from the dead um, and that God has exalted the Christ to his right hand and he's now reigning in heaven. And um, it's connected strongly with the kingdom language. I mean, when Jesus came, his forerunner, John the Baptist, said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah. Jesus himself said the kingdom is here. And so the idea of Jesus being a king coming to reign is just all over the New Testament. And of course, the Psalm 110 language is applied
1: there all over the place.
2: So Mary was
1: told your son is going to... Be, you know, in the line of David, and he will sit on the throne. He will be the king. Uh, And like you said, John the Baptist said, "The repent for the kingdom is at hand. That's uh, Matthew 3, 2. Matthew 4, 17, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 10, 7, he sends out the apostles saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, Mark 9.1 says some of you are not going to die until you see the kingdom of God come with power. And, and, that, yeah, and, that, and
0: that all harmonizes with what Daniel prophesied, that in the fourth kingdom, right. the, from the time right. of Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord's kingdom would be established in that during that time.
1: During the fourth kingdom, which we would relate with the, with, um, the Roman Empire, yeah, the kingdom of God came. Now, some people have not understood it because they want to say, wait, I think Jesus should be sitting on a throne in the city of Jerusalem for Jesus' kingdom to be here. Let's just answer that quickly in two ways. Way number one, when Pilate asked Jesus, Are you a king? Jesus said, He didn't deny he was a king, but he made clear where his kingdom was, for type of kingdom.
0: Well, first of all, he didn't deny it. He said, what you said is right, but it's not of this world.
1: Right. My kingdom is not of this world. People looking for Jesus to sit on a throne, a lowly throne down here in Jerusalem, no, no, no. That's not his throne. Would you say,
0: Scott, would you say that that is similar to the way the Jews were looking for a kingdom that the Messiah was going to establish when he came,
1: yeah, it's the same thing. For instance, Charles Ryrie in his book *Basis of the and Old Faith*, he said when John the Baptist said, "Repent for the kingdom is at hand," and when Jesus said, "Repent for the kingdom is at hand," they were talking about the same earthly national kingdom that the Jews expected. But Ryrie said, "But it didn't come," and so they build up this whole system of putting it off into the future. Uh, but let's look at Acts 2 and then right back into 1 Corinthians 15 because they tie in together. Acts 2, Jesus has risen from the dead. He has ascended. And then there's a miracle. There's this sound of a wind from heaven. There's this uh, speaking in tongue, different languages by the apostles. And the people are gathering, how are they doing this? How are they doing this? And Peter says, Joel predicted this. It's the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. he reminded them, you remember Jesus, the guy that you killed? Do you remember all the miracles he did? Well, he couldn't stay dead because Psalm 16 said, you won't leave the Holy One to Hades or let him see corruption. And he says, that's not talking about David. That's talking about David's son, the Messiah, the Christ. And then he ends up saying uh, that this Jesus, verse 32 this Jesus God raised up. There's our resurrection again, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted to where? To a throne in Jerusalem? The right hand of God, Psalm 110. The right hand of God, and having received to the Father the promise of the Spirit, we poured, He has poured forth this that you're seeing and here and then he quotes Psalm 110, the same Psalm that's being echoed here in First Corinthians 15. He poured out this that you are seeing and hearing, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adon, two different Hebrew words there, sit at my right hand until when?
0: I make your enemies your footstool,
1: footstool. Let- all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him Lord and, and what does the word Christ mean? Messiah. Anointed. Yeah. Anointed. Anointed. Yeah. Jesus to be crucified. So with that, let's come back to First Corinthians
0: 15. Well, that that tells me the kingdom came, and he's sitting on the throne on that the day he wrote that.
1: And that's why in Colossians 1, when Paul wrote to the Christians in Colossae. He said that they had already been translated into the kingdom. When Paul, uh, excuse me, when John is writing in Revelation one, he's writing to people and he says, "I'm a partaker with you in the kingdom." They were all they were in uh, that kingdom. Jesus is reigning, but look, he has to reign again, verse twenty-five, until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last in me to be abolished will be death. Well, that will be accomplished in verse 54 and 55 when we're raised from the dead. Somebody read verse 54 and 55.
2: When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your
1: victory? O death, where is your sting? Okay. So when we're risen from the dead, that's when he has defeated the last enemy. So don't look for an antichrist to show up after we're resurrected from the dead. Don't look for a beast. Don't look for a battle of Armageddon after we're raised from the dead. This is what's the, the last enemy here. And then verse 27 he put all things in subjection under his feet. Uh, Scroll stuff to, yeah. You know, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, is there an exception to that?
2: Yeah, he's accepted who put all things in subjection under him. God the Father
1: is still at the top. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And this is similar to earlier back uh, in verse um, 24, when at the end he delivers the kingdom to the Father. All right, let's move forward here. We got to pick up the pace a little bit. Now he reverts back to the negative standpoint, if you're right, if there is no resurrection. Uh, He's covered that before, then he went, but there is, and here's what that means, and here's what's coming. Now, backing up again, somebody read 29 through 34.
2: Okay, and and basically what he's going to say here is there's there's two things that don't make sense if there's no resurrection from the dead, and he's going to talk about those two things.
0: All right, verse 29, otherwise, why do people mean, I'm sorry, what do people mean? by being baptized on behalf of the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? Do you want to keep going or stop right there? Yes, I protest, brothers, by my, pro- uh, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame.
1: All right, so we've only got 12 minutes left. We don't have time to talk much about baptism for the dead here but let's just point out that in the greek it says why do they do this and then it switches in verse 30 why are we so he's apparently referring to what somebody else is doing uh it's one of those passages that would have been clearer to the corinthians than it is uh to us Uh, like when he says to the corinthians i have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the Lord. Well, if somebody showed up with Titus and they know who he's talking about, uh, it's not as easy for us to know. But this is apparently a they as opposed to the we.
0: So what you're saying is the Christians weren't doing this, true Christians weren't doing this, Is other people doing it, and he's being sarcastic. What are they doing it for if that's not the case? But there
1: are, throughout the New Testament, you will see people who are holding on to a belief in Jesus but they're combining it with some other things Mm. like some of the Gnostics, uh, some of the Judaizers, et cetera, et cetera. There's some corruption that has come into the Corinthian church. That's why in verse 33, he says, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. This was a popular Greek saying. The Greek poet Menander is one of the ones that said this. So he's, he's reminding them of something they would have learned as school children. And his point here is you guys need to watch out who you're hanging around and who you're listening to. You were taught the gospel, and now you're being influenced by people. I'm going to sum this up rather briefly. There is an element in the church of Corinth that is really infatuated with human philosophy. Start naming chapters where Paul touches on human philosophy in in First Corinthians.
2: First Corinthians one through four is
1: kind of all over that. Over place. and over and over. Uh, there's this infatuation with human philosophy, and let me pull up. Let me share my screen for just a minute here,
0: Stephen. That's not unlike today. People infatuate with human philosophy.
1: Yeah. So real quickly, I want to throw this up here. Uh, Philosophical connections in 1st Corinthians 15. All right, so the idea of body and soul, this is from Immortality and Resurrection, major motifs of biblical thought uh, by this author, Trinity College, Hartford, etc. Appearing in Greek thought is a sharp distinction between body and soul. The soul is pure, holy, immortal, the body evil, earthly, corruptible. So, um, they're, they're wanting to be rid of body. And notice the last sentence in Platonic tradition, the body is regarded as a prison, death emancipates it. So Greeks, they, besides it not being natural that dead people start living again, it seemed, as Stephen said before, backwards to them. That's why in Acts 17, when Paul is up speaking to the people of Athens, Greece, and philosophers were there, they listened to him until he talked what?
2: The resurrection, and they scoffed at him.
1: And it's like, no, nah, you know, they're, they're done with that. First Corinthians 1 through 4, constant references to their love of philosophy. And here's two references from, uh, this is Menander, and he said, evil companions corrupt good manners, all right? There's another quote here. This is uh, the Epicureans, okay? They live by the motto, you see it at the bottom of the page, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Now go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's back us up to right around verse 32. So listen to this like a Greek, you know, and says, listen, if the dead are why did I fight with beasts at Ephesus? What, if the dead aren't raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, might as well go ahead and be an Epicurean. If this is it, you know, then you could go with the Epicurean thing. You need to watch who you're listening to. You're listening to Greek philosophy here. You need to stop that. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to you to sure. But they've got an objection. Somebody's gonna say, what?
2: What kind of body are they gonna come with? And I don't know, they might go into like, what about people lost at sea or who yeah. were burned or, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen to a body besides it being buried in the ground.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you died yesterday and you're buried today, you might not look too bad if you were buried 500 years ago. You know, how's this gonna work? What's it gonna, what kind of body are they gonna have? Paul says, you foolish person, what you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies, In which you sow is not the body to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps wheat, perhaps some other grain. God gives it a body as he has chosen, to each kind a seed of its own body. Not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind, the glory of the earth is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. Stars differ from other stars in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So the thing to note here, he's not gonna give a technical description. Here is exactly what it's gonna be like. I think it's kind of saying, you gotta wait and see. But here's the important part and what it's not gonna be like. The body that gets buried is perishable. But what is raised, imperishable. What's our next contrast? It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. Stop and think about, not very pleasant to think about, but it says in Ecclesiastes, better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. What might you die of? I might die of cancer. I might die of some other, and what's gonna be happening to my body as it brings about my death? It's not not gonna be pretty. It's not going to be glorious. It's not going to be powerful. I'll be getting weaker and decaying. And he- Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual, spiritual body. body. Underline those two words. It's not just raised a body. It's not this one with my, you know, crown and my missing tooth and my, you know, fading hairline. It's not this body, but it's not just a, a spirit. It's not just a naked ghost. Uh, that's Paul's point in Second in Corinthians 4 and 5. He said, this body is the king. My inward man it's being moved, but this body is the king. But I've got a habitation with God so that I won't be found naked. Right. I habitation won't. with God,
2: oh. it is not a mansion over the hilltop. It is a resurrection body. And I will say that just as, right. we, as we sing about these things, a lot of the songs that we sing talk about, well, actually, they don't talk about the resurrection very much at all. Um, right. They they talk more about where the soul never dies, and, and they, they don't talk about the resurrection. And again, there are passages that talk about you know, being apart from our body and a home with the Lord, but in the same context, that's in Second Corinthians 5, he talks about, we don't want to be found naked, but we want to be further clothed or clothed upon. And we, wow. it's not the Greek idea that we escape our body forever. It's again, not coming back to this broken body, but it is a glorified, incorruptible, imperishable, honorable body That comes from God. What exactly that's going to be about? We don't have the details. I suspect even if God told us, we might not fully understand. But we can trust God that it's going to be different than this body and better than this body.
1: Yeah, it's going to be glorious and powerful, imperishable. It will be a body. It will not be this natural earthly body. It will be a spiritual body exactly what will that spiritual body be like serve god wait find out thus it is written the first man of adam became a live living being the last became a life-giving spirit it's not the, the spiritual isn't what comes first the natural comes first then the spiritual the first man was from the earth a man of dust second man is from heaven as was the man of dust so those who are of the dust as the man of heaven so are those of heaven just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now he gets into, and if one of you read this for us here in our last couple of minutes, um, what about people who are still alive? So this is those that are dead, how they're going to be raised. But what about if you're still alive at the second coming of Christ? Go ahead.
2: I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that is to say, we're not all going to die physically, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.
1: And so as these bodies will decay, uh, it's good to take care of yourself. You you take vitamins, exercise, go for a walk, you know, uh, try not to catch COVID, you know, it's good to take care of yourself but it's a it's a losing battle <laughs> you know 100 years from now uh you will have lost uh, but in christ there is the promise of resurrection and not just eternal life with god but this this resurrected imperishable body uh so when they were saying there's no resurrection paul spends an entire chapter refuting that, reminding them how important this is. When Hymenaeus and Phineas said the resurrection already happened already? No, it didn't. When Max, Kings and others said, oh, it all happened in 70 AD? No. Uh, Jesus said in the resurrection, there's no marriage and giving a marriage. Guess what we're still having today?
2: Marriage and giving a marriage.
1: And we're still in flesh and blood. This is something that it says will happen at his coming when he's finished his reign and he defeats all enemies and death is defeated uh and he who has the keys to death and hades uh brings this uh resurrection to us
0: scott you said uh, 100 years from now we're we're gonna lose the battle i think i'm gonna lose the battle before 100 years from now but this is what's comforting this we're all going to lose the battle whoever's listening in here within 100 years
1: but this is what's coming in 100 years it will be very clear (laughs) yeah less than that listen yeah
2: well the beautiful thing is uh even though we will lose the battle to death death loses the final battle yes and we're raised that's what's comforting that's the beautiful thing up in victory amen Thank you guys for the good discussion today. Uh, I hope this has been helpful to our viewers. If y'all have any questions or comments about this or other studies you've heard us do, please reach out to us uh, at BibleQuest.tv. We'd be happy to uh, listen to questions that you have. And um, we're grateful to be able to discuss these things that are of utmost importance in eternity. So
1: thank you guys for listening. And we'll see y'all next Tuesday.